0: So, like i just prayed we are going to conclude this morning our short little summer series in the uh the book of micah we're going to read the very last section of that book now um, our scripture text is micah 7 starting at verse 8 and then reading through the very end of the book if you have a bible i would encourage you to to turn there to micah 7 we're going to be going through uh, this various sections of this verse by verse by verse and so it might be helpful to be able to look at it as we go through if you don't have a bible you want to use the blue one that's in the chair racks then you can do that micah 7 is on page 991 so you can cut cut right there so if you uh, if you have that uh, or as you're looking for it let me invite you to stand i'm going to read if you're able stand with us i'm going to read this text and when i'm done i'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the lord and invite you to respond with thanksgiving by saying thanks be to God. Micah 7, starting at verse eight. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she, will not, now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day the boundary shall be far extended. In that day they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt. And from Egypt to the river. From sea to sea. And from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants. For the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things the nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might they shall lay their hands on their mouths their ears shall be deaf they shall lick the dust like a serpent like the crawling things of the earth they shall come trembling out of their strongholds they shall turn in dread to the Lord our God and they shall be in fear of you who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but um, eating cereal right you know like the you know uh, crisped puffed popped grain or rice that we typically as Americans put into a bowl and pour milk over eating cereal it is as you think about it one of the most um, one of the most basic and actually at the same time one of the most challenging eating tasks particularly for a young child think about this on the one hand cereal is is pretty basic it's a pretty basic meal kids generally start eating it when they're young, we think of it as kind of as a staple of, a, of American breakfast. But on the other hand, think about what's involved, the complexity of eating the standard bowl of cereal, right? It usually starts off easy enough because your ratio of cereal to milk is more in favor of the cereal. So it's not hard to get the cereal onto the, into the spoon, but as it goes on, it becomes an increasingly complex game the more challenging the next bite becomes until at the very end you're left with just a few pieces of cereal floating in the milk taunting you to try to pick them up before they escape the rising spoon, right? It's got mess written all over it, particularly for a young child. And inevitably, that is what happens. Now, I remember years ago at the breakfast table, one of our children eating Rice Krispies, I believe, announced, Daddy, I make a mess what happens with Rice Krispies sometimes, right? Right? That's what happens. But it was followed immediately. Daddy, I make a mess was followed immediately and without hesitation by a very confident question that they assumed would be answered in the yes. Daddy, can you clean it up for me? Now that's cereal but in a very similar way, living in this world that we live in here is incredibly basic on the one hand, right? It's common to all of us. We all live in the same world. We essentially have all of the the same tasks. We need food. We need shelter. We need meaningful relationships, right? And yet, it is, this life that we live in, simultaneously, incredibly complex. Sometimes even the most basic of tasks, like getting cereal onto a spoon, Increase increase from easy to incredibly difficult as you go along, and then they become almost taunting to complete them well, work marriage parenting school life so the cry of the child daddy i make a mess is not a far-fetched statement for many of us if we're honest as we think about the simultaneously simple and incredibly complex thing that is this life we live in the real question becomes is whether we're able to ask with the same confidence as a child sitting at the table can we ask with the same confidence, Daddy, can you clean it up for me? Now, it's not to deny responsibility for the mess, but we need to admit that we first have no idea how we can possibly fix what we've broken. Now, if you were here last week, then you remember that the first part of Micah 7, specifically verses 1 to 6, is largely in the Daddy, I make a mess category. And it's only in verse 7 where we see a, a hinge, the flash of an expectation a confident expectation that daddy will indeed hear the cry of his children and clean it up but look at verse seven again this was last week's text but there here's where the hinge is this is where the hope comes in daddy i made a mess but verse seven as for me i will look to the lord i will wait for the god of my salvation my god my daddy will hear me now we could have ended there right The confidence, but it doesn't end there. Micah doesn't end there. And it's of great benefit to us that he doesn't end there. Not because verse 7 isn't true, but because the elaboration that Micah provides in verses 8 to 20 makes what verse 7 says, the confidence and the hope of verse 7, it makes that hope concrete. It gives it a level of of confidence that we can believe it. Now, poetically, if you look at verses 8 to 20, it's essentially one song of victory. A song of victory. If, if verses one to six is a song of lament, then verses eight to twenty is a song of victory. And there's four sections that everyone kind of notes as you as you read through it. Four sections that transition the song of lament, verses one to six, through the hinge of verse seven into the song of victory in four sections from verses eight to. to to 20 right so that's what I want to do I want to look at those four sections of this song and they kind of go right in a row verses 8 to 10 Jerusalem's light verses 11 to 13 Jerusalem's future verses 14 to 17 God's shepherd and verses 18 to 20 God's covenant now we'll see the progression as we as we go through and the points are in your bulletin if you want to follow along but let's start with the first section of this song Jerusalem's light verses 8 to 10 now what we see here is the humiliated city of Jerusalem it's a personification of the city of Jerusalem the city is talking almost here having an imaginary dialogue with her enemy and she the city of Jerusalem tells her enemy not to gloat over his victory enemy you may have victory now but don't gloat over it because because my my humiliation Jerusalem speaking my humiliation is temporary the city here is trusting that God will deliver her. Look at verse eight. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. You see? Jerusalem's current state is a fallen one. The image of a city trapped in a, uh, in a siege of some kind or perhaps more appropriately, right, because it uses the language of darkness, like a prisoner sitting in a dungeon in, in darkness. Yet even in the midst of the prison, there's hope of freedom, right? Jerusalem has confidence that God's gonna bring comfort even in the midst of the, of the pain. Now, I want you to note something here. Rescue for Jerusalem will come later. It's gonna happen, but at least for now, the light that we're talking about, the light that the city is boasting about that it has of, the, of, the, uh, uh, of God in the midst of this darkness, it's not a light that comes after the darkness. It is actually a light that is shining in the midst of the darkness where the city is right now. And it, and it poses a question for us. Does the light of God shine in the midst of your darkness? Even when the darkness is your own fault. Remember, that's, what, that's the case for Jerusalem. It's possible. That's what Lady Jerusalem is saying. It can shine in the midst of the darkness. In fact, the light often begins to shine at the moment when you recognize that the darkness is your fault. Look at verse 9. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Now see the recognition of sin. Now that doesn't mean that every situation that you find yourself in is directly correlated to something that you've done you can be the victim of the of injustice you can be the victim of the wrong and the sin of someone else but at the root of it humanity as a whole sits in darkness because of our rebellion against God and Lady Jerusalem recognizes that its current condition is not because of random chance and it's not because of God's powerlessness it's because of its own guilt the city knows that its fate God's discipline is just it's appropriate Back in Micah 6, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, Micah summons all the parties together for a trial concerning the guilt of Jerusalem. And God is the prosecutor. He's the the party that makes a case against his people, lodging a charge, it says. But the light that they're talking about here, that the city is now experiencing in verse 8, is based on the hope that the Lord is not just the prosecutor, that the Lord is also the defense advocate who pleads the case. Now, ultimately, that light be- that began just as a gleam visible only to Jerusalem is going to be visible to, to everyone, and the tables will be turned completely on Jerusalem's enemies. That's what verse 10 is about. The situation will ultimately be reversed, and the enemy experiencing the victory at the moment will now experience or will then experience the shame that Jerusalem currently experiences. Okay, that's, that's point number one. That's where this song of victory starts. Light in the midst of darkness. I see it. Now, second section, Jerusalem's future, right? The light shines on something that now the people can see, something in the future, a hope that can be, can be seen. Right here, as the song moves forward, Micah responds to Lady Jerusalem by prophesying about the future of the city. Right, And he says that God's people from throughout the earth will find safety within her walls, within the walls of Jerusalem, right? That God's enemies are gonna be then left outside, right? Let's look at it again, start at verse 11. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Okay, so what's happening here? See, Micah's elaborating on the first section. It's just what we're saying, right? There's gonna be a day this light is now shining on a future day when stuff will happen. So two questions. When's the day and what's the stuff? Right? When's the day going to come and what's the stuff that's going to happen? Well, first, when's the day? And I think there's good reason given, given what Micah says is going to happen and given the way that a lot of prophecy in the Old Testament works, there's, there's, there's good reason to see it as referring probably to a couple of things all at the same time. At the very least, he's probably referring to the time when, when Micah witnessed the city of Jerusalem rescued from the invading Assyrian army in 701 B.C. That would have been the immediate context of what he's talking about. Now, I think we can also probably see in this a prophecy at some level of the return of God's people after hundreds of years of exile. So hundreds of years later, after the people of Jerusalem were taken off into, into uh, exile in Babylon, they come back with Ezra and Nehemiah helps build the walls and all of that, right? There, there's a sense in which, which Micah is also looking to that. Now, ultimately, he's also looking far down the corridors of time to a day when people will turn in faith from every nation and they will find safety in the spiritual Jerusalem in the community of God. That is our day. Now, now, now what's gonna happen? Right, this is what's gonna happen. The walls are gonna be built. In other words, there's gonna be, be a place of security that is erected for the, for the people of God. Now, interestingly, the word for walls here, it's not typically the word for walls that's used when talking about the city walls of a, of a big city, of a fortress. It's the word for walls that's, that's referring usually to like a stone enclosure of like a vineyard, around a vineyard, or perhaps more appropriate to the imagery that Mike is using here, the walls that would be built around a sheep pen. Then it says the boundaries are going to be extended. So think about this. There's going to be an expansion of influence. This, this sheep pen is going to grow. The zone of protection and refuge is going to grow and grow. It's going to be extended. And as it expands, the people will come. Right? The future of Jerusalem is one of protection and one where people from all nations will find refuge and salvation in an ever-expanding enclosure of safety. And look at the people who are coming, verse 12, from Assyria and Egypt. This is very interesting. Egypt, right, who was the enemy of God's people in the historical triumphant moment in redemptive history when God brought them out of slavery. Assyria, who would have been the enemy of Israel right now at this moment. The people are coming from Assyria and from Egypt and from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. Right? This image of expanding geography, all-inclusive. Now, not all-inclusive in the sense that every single person comes into the into the refuge, but it is intended to include representatives from every geography, from all nations, all of them coming to find safety in the community of God, to place themselves under his authority. Now, there's a very important caveat in verse 13, but the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. In other words, while there is safety and security on the inside of God's walls, there is no safety and security outside of God's walls right after God's people are removed from the world all that's going to be left is desolation and, des- and desperation now this is very unpopular right? because what Micah is saying is that some will come under God's authority they will find security they will find safety but others will reject God's authority remain on the outside and face the judgment that they deserve. Now the objection goes like this. That seems a little bit harsh, doesn't it? That's what you might hear some people say. All right, should someone really face God's judgment because they just refuse to come inside, figuratively speaking? Because they refuse to come inside the sheep pen. They don't want to come inside the sheep pen. Does that really make them like deserving of God's judgment and desolation? Well, see, here in verse thirteen, the desolation that comes results from the it results from the deeds of the people. In other words, the judgment is not primarily because, just because they refuse to come in. It's because of their evil deeds. And we tend not to think of it like that. But Micah's point all along is that the judgment that results, however that judgment happens, is a judgment that is because of guilt. Right? Because rebellion against God is a capital offense. The judgment is deserved. That's true for everyone. The only difference between those who are inside the walls and find safety and security is that somehow, we haven't gotten to it yet, but somehow God mercifully protects them, brings them inside from the consequences of the guilt that they deserve just as much as those who are on the outside. Now, has that sunk into you? Do you recognize the danger of being outside the walls? The danger of staying outside of God's protection? Maybe you think you do. Maybe you you think you grasp it. I think all of us at some level may say, I get that. But let me challenge, if that's practically true, think about it, how often do you pray for someone who is outside the walls? How often do you tell someone who is outside the walls about the safety and the security that is found inside the walls? An old Baptist seminary professor who taught more than a century ago wrote that if if we could have only a five-minute glimpse into hell, our evangelism would be changed for a lifetime, right? if, we, if we had just a five-minute glimpse at the desolation that is discussed in verse 13, our willingness, our desire to tell people about what's inside the walls would be changed for a lifetime. Now, let me challenge a different group of people, right? Because you might look at this and you might be thinking yeah, totally on the other end, right? I, there's no way I'm worthy to come inside the walls, I mean you made me think of my deeds just now I can't I, I, and they overwhelm me I, I don't deserve God's protection I don't deserve his his care his his refuge from the consequence of my deeds that may be so but see deserving it is not the qualification for coming into God's sheep pen it's not right and to you what I want to say is we still live in the day that day we still live in it The day when the enemies of God, like the Egyptians, like the Assyrians, maybe like you, right? The day when those are the people who are invited in, the invitation is open to you. Now, that's essentially the first half of the song, right? Section one, Jerusalem's light. Oh, wow, in the midst of the darkness, I see something. Number two, section two, Jerusalem's future. What I see is a a place, a place of refuge, of safety. Now, section three, right? We get into some of the how. Section four, we get into the, into the why, right? How do the people come into the safety of the, of the sheep pen and why are they allowed to come, right? The answer is, let me just cut right to the chase, section three and four. They're led into the sheep pen by a shepherd and they are assured of their, their, their right to be there by a covenant. They're led by a shepherd and they're assured by a covenant. That's sections three and four. Now, section three, God's shepherd. Verses 14 to 17. They're they're arranged like a short little dialogue between Micah and God. It's kind of like they're going back and forth. And there's three parts to it. Let's look at it. Verse 14 shepherd your people with your staff the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land let them graze in bashan and gilead as in the days of old okay this is micah micah's praying for god to fulfill his promise to restore jerusalem basically asking god to do what he's already discussed earlier in verses 8 to 13 in sections 1 to 2 he's saying god i want you to do this to which god responds in verse 15 that's what i'm going to do as in the days when you came out of the land of egypt i will show them marvelous things then verses 16 to 17 Micah speaks again right it's kind of a back and forth verse 16 he meditates on the implications of God's promise of saying I will show them marvelous things I've done it before I'm going to do it again and Micah meditates and he says verse 16 the nations shall be shall see and shall be ashamed of their of their might and he meditates on that now A lot of this section, it does, it touches on similar themes of rescue, of salvation to what we've discussed already. But but we get a very important piece of information here about who specifically is going to do that rescue and that salvation. Who's going to bring us into the sheep pen. It's God who's going to do it. And this this is significant, even in just a general sense, because it tells us who's not going to do it. In other words, Micah prays that God would accomplish the restoration and the rescue of his people because it is utterly impossible for the people to accomplish it themselves. Right? In other words, Micah prays that God would accomplish this and, 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 and do it completely because, because we can't do it ourselves. The people, their plans, their promises, the, the, the promises to do better. I'll do better next time, God. I will. I'll accomplish it. It's not going to make it happen. It's not going to work. The people are not militarily superior to their political enemies. They're not morally superior to their spiritual enemies. No, if they have any real hope of victory, their hope cannot be in the victory itself. It has to be a hope in the God who's going to accomplish it for them. Now, that's the same thing that's true for us. Right? If we look at the messes of our lives, right? look at the cereal spilled all over your table, Right? We need to realize that we can't clean it up ourselves. We're like a child strapped in a booster seat. Right? Our weakness, our immaturity, the bonds that hold us where we are make it impossible for us to be the ones who clean up the mess. Daddy needs to do it. Right? So in a very general sense, it's God and not us who's going to bring us rescue. But there's even more. Right? Look more closely at what Micah is saying here. It's not just a, a general God as in a, you know, a, a non-specific God. It is a shepherd God. That's what Micah's asking for. He's asking for a shepherd. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance. Now, think about sheep for a second. Sheep do not just wander into the safety of the walls of the sheep pen. They never just find their way on their own into the sheep pen. They need to be led there by a shepherd. But it's a particular kind of shepherd, you'll note, that's required, right? The word for staff in verse 14, it's also a word that can be used for a scepter, right? So it's not just like a, you know, help me get my footing as I walk along the rocky road. It's the scepter of a king, a symbol of rule and authority, right? The dual meaning is intentional, right? This is more than a walking stick. This This is the staff of a king, and that's what Micah is praying for, a shepherd king. Now, this is not a new theme for Micah. It's not a new theme in God's redemptive history. If you if you've got your Bibles, go back to to chapter five. We looked at this a, a number of weeks ago. Back to chapter five and look at verse two. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Right then, verse four. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. So back in chapter 5, Micah is prophesying that there would be a future ruler, a king with a scepter, who would originate from Bethlehem who would act as a shepherd, the staff, with the strength of the Lord, the scepter, to bring security and protection for his people. And of course, at some level, it has to be in Micah's mind that Israel's King David was a shepherd, that that's where he had started, who would come from Bethlehem who established Jerusalem as the center of security for God's people that had to be in Micah's mind but while David's reign was great no doubt about it David of course was flawed any security that he achieved for God's people was temporary it was it was fleeting and Micah's prophecy was saying that someone in the line of David but greater than David a real shepherd king an ultimate shepherd king would ultimately come now in chapter 7 Micah is praying for that to happen praying that the greater shepherd would come give us the shepherd king and God says he will chapter 7 verse 15 as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt I will show them marvelous things so it's going to happen you're going to get that shepherd king and of course we have in John chapter 10 that's exactly what Jesus claims that title he claims the title of shepherd. Why? Because in, in John ten three, because he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he is gone and when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Jesus claims the title. John ten sixteen. He himself Jesus himself says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. In other words, they're from places like Egypt. They're from places like Assyria. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. That's exactly who Micah is asking for. A shepherd who will lead people from all nations to safety. Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem in the line of David, is the shepherd king for whom Micah longed. The shepherd king God promised to send and the shepherd king who now calls and leads his sheep into the sheep pen. That's section three. That's who's going to accomplish this hope that the light shines on that we see. So sections one and two declare the hope of God's people in misery. Jerusalem's hope, Jerusalem's future. Section three tells us who's going to accomplish this, establish it, God's shepherd king. Now finally, section four tells us on what basis it will be established. Just read verse 18 with me again. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression, For the remnant of his inheritance he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love right this is the response of God's people praising God for the restoration that he said he's going to bring and did you notice that the people here as they speak they seem very different than the arrogant self-centered people of Israel that have been described throughout the book right here the people of God are speaking humbly they're recognizing God's authority they're overwhelmed with God's mercy because they've been confronted with their own sin and they're amazed at the forgiveness and the mercy of this God who will lead them into the safety of his presence and that's true that's true for us it's true it's true that when we've been shown mercy amazement is the only possible response but there is still one piece that's missing of the puzzle why in other words on what basis would God do this for people who are undeserving? And I, don't, I, don't, I want you to see that this isn't some just theological or academic point because your initial reaction might be, does it really matter if we get to come inside to safety? If God's gonna rescue us despite what we've done, does it really matter? Why, right? If, if that's what I get, who cares why? Just be happy about it, right? But I want you to see that if you do not have a ground for that hope, right, for that promise. If you don't really understand why we have those things, then you're not going to be able to really fully enjoy them, and you're not going to really be secure that you, that you have them certainly, right? You need a basis for your hope, and there's two levels to the basis for the hope that we have, right? The first we see at the beginning of verse 18. The people say, who is a God like you? In other words, God has no equal, right? There's no one else worthy of this of this praise. And there's lots of reasons why God is greater than all the other pretender gods, but what's specifically cited here about why God is greater than everyone else, and who is a God like you? What's specifically cited is his willingness to pardon sin, to forgive transgressions. Okay, but again, how? On what basis? I want you to see. The the verb that's translated pardoning in verse 18, right? But, that verb is, is a form of a word that means to lift or to carry. Right? Stay, stay with me here because this is, this is significant. In the book of Leviticus, the, the law of Moses that explains the ceremonial sacrificial system, in the book of Leviticus, God describes and, 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 and lays out in detail the intricate processes for, for ceremony and for sacrifice. And the whole main point is for the people of Israel to see the seriousness of their sin and to see in in an imaged way, in pictures, in visual metaphors, how sin is forgiven. And so there are sacrifices that occur on a daily basis for all different kinds of reasons and occasions. But once a year, there's a day that's set aside called the Day of Atonement. When certain things were done, to atone for the sins of the people. And on the Day of Atonement, there's a sacred ritual that's described. It's in Leviticus 16. And what would happen is that Aaron, who was the first of the high priests, would confess the sins of the people over the head of a live goat. He would lay his hands on the goat, it says, and and confess, this is Leviticus 16 confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the israelites all their sins and put them that is the sins on the goat's head and then it says he shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task the goat would carry on itself all their sins that word carry is the word that's translated in micah here as pardon now the translation in Micah is not wrong that is what God is doing he is pardoning his people but the point is to see that word the nuance of that word is more than just pardon as in "Ah, just forget about it just wipe it away that's not what that's not the weight of what that word pardon means because God doesn't just doesn't just "Ah, forget about it ah whatever it's okay don't worry about it that's not what pardon means it means that he is carrying away your sin. He bears the burden of it. He carries it away. In other words, the shepherd king of Micah 7 is also the scapegoat of Leviticus 16. You see the significance? Dale Roth Davis, Old Testament scholar, said this is, much, this is about much more than Hebrew grammar. It's not what it's about. This is about grace. Our sins are pardoned because God himself chose, like the goat in Leviticus 16, to have the sins of the people laid on his head so that he can carry them away on our behalf so that we can come into the sheep pen, he would bear the consequences in our place. Do you see the wonder in that? Do you see how it would lead you to proclaim if you really understood, like, understood that? Who is a God like you? That's the first level for the basis of the hope of God's rescue and restoration. Now, there's still one further why. Why would God choose to do this? Right? Why does he do this? Why does he carry our sins away? Right? We get to come in because he's carried our sins away, but why? Well, verse 18 tells us because God delights in steadfast love. Now here's that word again. We've seen it a number of times through the book of Micah. It keeps popping up all over the place. This Hebrew word hesed that's translated steadfast love. It's more than just the casual casting aside of sin. It's a commitment to a promise. Right? That's what's appealed to in verse 20. The pledge made on oath in days long ago. A promise made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God's cause for forgiveness is his delight to show mercy. His steadfast love. Now, that might sound a little bit circular to you for a second. Think about this. His steadfast love is based on nothing but his delight and his love for us. In other words, God loves us simply because it is his pleasure, it is his delight to love us, and that settles it. There is no further why. I use this illustration at weddings. Some of you have probably heard it, but I love it. This is a great illustration. Think through a conversation with me. Right? A wife says to her husband one day, right, ask the question, why do you love me? And the husband answers with all the seemingly right answers. Well, because, because you're beautiful, because of the, of the way you make me laugh, because you're so smart, because I love talking with you and going on long walks and on and on. He goes, and those are all good things to say. But if that's all he says, if that's as deep as he goes, if that's the basis for his love, then it might make her feel good in that instance. But at those moments of doubt, She's going to wonder, she's going to come back, and she's going to think to herself, well, wait a minute, what if I get older and I'm not so beautiful? What if I struggle with seasons of depression and I don't smile? What if I get sick and I'm not fun to be with anymore? I can't go on those walks anymore. What happens if there comes a point where you need to take care of me like a little child when I make a mess of my Rice Krispies? What happens then? Will you still love me then? And that's when the only satisfying answer of the husband is this, honey, I love you and I will always love you because I have chosen and I delight to love you. Circular argument, right? Wait, what, right? Yes, that's what steadfast covenant love is. It is not a love that is dependent on some external condition. It is a love that is based completely and totally on itself. God promises in Micah 7, to show us mercy and have compassion on us, to tread our sins under his feet, not because of any external condition, not because of anything from the outside. We don't have to use that as the basis of our hope. The basis of our hope is that God has chosen to show us mercy, to have compassion on us, to tread his sins under his feet, not because we're worthy, but because he delights to show us mercy. He loves us because he loves us. There is no external condition and there is no greater security for our salvation, for our hope of being inside the sheep pen, safe and secure for eternity. There is no greater basis for our hope than that. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the goodness and the mercy that you have shown to us in the shepherd king, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would truly rejoice in wonder and in awe at the greatness of the God that you are. Help us to see that, to understand it, and to proclaim it to others so that they might see it too. Help us to be so overwhelmed by the safety, the undeserved safety that is ours in your protection, that we desire to proclaim it to all who do not know that safety. Help us to do this, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.